Failure has made us better at our jobs, better in our family, as a wife, as a husband, as a brother or sister, and how it's just made us a better person. We spend so much time talking about how great and glamorous life is, especially on social media, and I am over it. So this was a brainchild to help just bring the real out of people and back into the forefront of everybody's minds and eyes. And today we have a client and a friend. I mean, I, I think we're friends. So I'm gonna go with that. That wasn't convincing, TJ. <laughs> it's meh, meh. Um, he's also a father and a husband and a professor at a major public university where he teaches chemistry and he's also an avid runner and a Lego connoisseur. I'm not sure if we're gonna go there, but I was looking forward to saying that just to piss Michelle, his wife off. So TJ, why don't you give us a little intro about what you do and who you are, because I didn't give people much. Um, so I am a associate professor at um, a university, um, the University of North Florida, here in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, I've been here 10 years. I teach chemistry and I, um, I'm an analytical chemist, which means I use instrumentation to look at surfaces specifically. Um, I've been doing chemistry since the early, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, I got my bachelor's degree from the University of Florida in 2003. Um, from there, I went to Penn State University where I got my PhD in 2008. After that, I went to University of California, um, Davis, just do a, what we call a postdoctoral researcher. Um, basically, it's like an apprenticeship to become a professor. And then I started at UNF in 2011, and I've been there ever since. Um, so I basically have been really good at science my entire life. And from a very early age, I realized that I wanted to be a scientist, even though I really didn't know what that meant. But as I progressed through the various high school, college, I realized what a scientist was, and that has been my career trajectory since then. What do you remember the exact moment that you realized you were a total nerd? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, a nerd and then a, a chemistry nerd. nerd. Yeah. Yes, chemistry Two nerd. different things. So um, a chemistry <laughs> nerd, I was in, this had to be middle school. And so my parents had a dark room and I went to summer camp to do photography and like photography as in. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay, wait. T people, tell people what a dark room is before we get people whose mind is in the gutter. So back in the day, um, back in the day, everything, cameras were shot in film, this 35 millimeter, 120. And the idea is basically we would develop our own film. And so you'd have to do it in the dark room because the film was photosensitive until you developed it. And so we would go into the bathroom and pitch black and basically roll our film into canisters to do chemical processes on it to actually make it um, not photosensitive anymore. And it would be a negative. And then we would have an enlarger where we'd put the negative into and then you would actually expose a piece of paper that was photosensitive that you then would go through and develop with chemicals to make a picture. Much, much more complicated than now. And we only did black and white because um, color was much more sensitive to temperature and much more challenging. So everything we did back in the day was black and white. But that's hey, when sorry. I really, that's when I realized that I was a, a nerd because I thought it was the coolest thing that basically this piece of plastic is 
sensitive to light and you take a picture that you have to precisely control how fast you expose it, how sensitive it is, how big a hole it is. And then you have to go through all these chemicals to fix it and essentially develop and fix it. So it's not sensitive anymore. And it just blew my mind that that's even possible and that someone came up with that. And so that's pretty much when I knew I wanted to be a chemist. So that was middle school, middle school. Yeah. But even before that, I was good at science. I mean, math and science was not was easy subjects. I would go to science museums. I would watch all the shows like back in the eighties, like three, two, one contact, um, which is an old PBS show all about science. Um, I would wake up on early morning and watch Mr. Wizard, which is a show from the early eighties. I remember, um, this NASA show was on before the challenger accident happened and around there with like NASA PR at like six thirty morning. So I used to, I used, yeah, I was a big science nerd and my parents got me Lego bricks, lots of them. And so. I did all that kind of stuff. Oh, so Legos go back to your childhood. Well, that wasn't like an adult. That wasn't like an adult fascination. Oh, no, I've gotten a Lego set for Christmas every year since I was like four or five. So, yeah, no, I've had Lego my entire life. Oh, my God, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, it was a recurring joke for my parents. Um, Like (laughs) middle school, high school, yeah, I got one set, maybe a Technic set or something. Then even in college and grad school, my dad would always buy me a little tiny Lego set. And then when Thomas was born, my son, we would basically um, get bigger and bigger sets. And now I've gotten back into it because they've really targeted adults, which is kind of cool. So I enjoy that. Where where do you keep all of them? I've been to your house. It's... Um, I have a closet. <laughs> Some people in the house. In the house. Well, it's one of the um, guest bedrooms in the closet. I just have them. I don't buy. A- Michelle makes it out sound like I have a whole bunch of Lego sets. I only have. I have a bunch of sets. Yes, but they're organized <laughs> very well. So wait, you build them, but you don't then tear them apart. No, I display them. I have um in the middle bedroom. I have shelves for them and stuff, and that's where I keep most of them. So. I, I display them tactfully and if I get bored with them, I, I will deconstruct them and put them in bags and with instructions for later kind of stuff. I mean, there's a whole discussion on how to do that kind of stuff. Do you mix them or not mix them? I mean, but we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> oh, wow. This could get fun. I didn't know it's been this long. I thought that this was something you got into after Thomas was born to spend more time with Thomas. But this goes back to <laughs> when you were a baby. Oh, absolutely. Well, I would argue, I mean, like it got more when Thomas was born after that, because it was something we could share and do. But no, I mean, um, it was in the eight. I mean, yeah, I had lots of Lego bricks in the 80s. I had some of the original computer ones. They have ones that were are computer controlled. And I had one of the first sets of those they created, which was very cool. I got those in high school, which was neat. But the neat thing is about Lego is that they are so precise that my bricks from the 80s still work today with my son. You can't they're indistinguishable for wow. the most part. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I hope that Thomas continues that tradition. Sorry, I did not mean to get off track. So what do you still feel like you love your job, that it's still part of who you are and it speaks to your soul like it did growing up? I feel like mine does. I definitely get a lot of reward out of my job. Mine's similar to yours, something I've been doing since I was a kid. So that's a good question. I mean, I love the idea of my job and I love aspects of my job. I think I made one of the mistakes I've made is conflating the idea that my job is my life. And I think I've really started um, recognizing that that's not actually true. COVID actually has done that for me quite a bit. But the idea is I love what I do, what I do for free, probably. But 
I don't want to, <laughs> and I got to support <laughs> my family. But at the same time, my job is not my life. And so I, I love what I do and I love aspects of my job and there's annoying aspects of my job and things I can't control because I'm a state employee. There's things there I can't control, unfortunately, that come down the pipe and there's nothing I can do about it. So I find that very frustrating in some respects like that. But I mean, overall, I, I've been doing what I've been doing for 20 plus years and I, I love it with what I do. As a, and as I've progressed, it's become more and more like, for instance, like I was a student and then I became an apprentice and then I became an actual professor. So I got the cool shot. So I really enjoy that aspect of it. Do you think you're a controlling person? I didn't mean that offensively, but do you feel like you're a control, like you need control? I am. I find myself, I like not having a direct boss per se. Like I have a chairperson and a dean that oversee my my trajectory at UNF, but I decide what research I want to do. And like, if we're talking just my research, which is one of my passions, I, I get to choose what projects I work on, which is kind of cool. Um, I get the, the joke pre-COVID and before my thought process was I could choose what 60 hours a week I work on my research kind of stuff like that. So I like that aspect. And as a professor, I have incredible freedom in terms of what problems I solve and how I go about approaching those problems that I, I think is very foreign to most people in most other fields. And so from that aspect, I love that aspect. Like, I mean, when I write papers or I tell a story and it's coming primarily from my group, I get to decide how that story is told, how that narrative is structured, what experiments do we need to run and things like that. And I find that very satisfying in that respect. So yeah, there's a lot of control there, I would say. So that actually the way you just put it, and we've talked about this many times, but I've never heard it you have a lot more control than I thought you would have in your career. Is that unique to where you work? Because I don't feel like a lot of professors have the type of control that you do. Is it just the industry that you're professing? No, I, I think most professors have for their research. I mean, like there's other aspects of my job, like teaching and service and other things like that, where I don't have much say over. They tell me what classes I'm gonna teach and I teach those classes. I can choose how to teach them, but I'm going to teach those classes. Service, I'm going to serve on these committees. I'm going to do these things. Um, in research, I think most people with their scholarship, which is what we call research, um, I get to choose how I do it. Like when I was hired, I had to write. So when you're hired as a professor, you have to write this proposal. Like it's usually five to 10 pages. It varies from institution and institution of exactly what they want. But essentially you write this proposal and this is what I'm going to do if I come here. And then when you get there, you gotta follow that somewhat, but a lot of times research, it leads to something else or something else interests you or something else comes up and you get to pursue that if you want. I mean, I would say I'm uniquely positioned where I'm at because I'm a much smaller school. So my amount of money I need to do to run my group is much smaller than say when I was a grad student, my grad student group was in the millions operating budget because we had 30 oh, wow. people, 30 grad, we had 30 grad students and probably 10 research scientists, my boss. And so that was a much different scale of research and attacking the problems. But as a grad student, I had to do what my boss told me to do. My advisor, he would say, you're working on this. And that's what I would do for my research versus now I get to choose the project I want to work on. And if I want to go a totally different direction and I need equipment, I have to write a grant to get that. And so it's very different. I remember this. Yes. 
very different than most places. And I get to choose the problem I work on, essentially. So going back to what you said originally in, in this, in your statement, was kind of a light bulb moment for me, which some of you guys watching this might think I'm an idiot, but I mean, the way he just put it was a light bulb. I didn't realize that there was three core aspects of your career. There was scholarship slash research, there's service, which I'm still a little bit confused on, and then there's teaching. And those don't always have to correlate with each other. Your research can be something totally different than when you're teaching your, your students, yeah, right? They can. They can. So like, for instance, I, my area of expertise is in analytical chemistry, surface analytical chemistry to be specific. So and at UNF, I teach the analytical courses for chemistry majors. So I teach a class called modern analytical chemistry. And the idea with that class is we talk about the instrumentations used to do research. So um, give you a great example. Um, with um, PCR tests, right? Um, they use fluorescence technique. Basically, they use these molecules that light up to tell if COVID's there or not. And so I talk about the techniques used to measure that. And so we go through a variety of different techniques to describe those. That's my area of expertise. And so I teach that class. Um, I also do lower level chemistry classes, such as like general chemistry, which a large portion of the university takes for all the science majors. If you're MD, PhD, whatever it is, or pharmacy, whatever you're going to do, you need chemistry. I teach that lower level class. I can't go teach organic chemistry. That's not my area of expertise. And it would be very challenging for me to do. So I have a, like a lane I teach for, for teaching. Um, and my research is definitely a small lane that I am the expert on and that's what I'm going to pursue because it's really hard to jump from one lane to another in research. People do it, but it's really challenging to do because you got to relearn all this stuff and you got to remember I've been doing what I've been doing. I started grad school in 2003. Before that, I was doing similar research as an undergraduate in 2001, 2002. So I've been doing this almost 20 years and that's 20 years of experience. That's 20 years of knowing what works and what doesn't work, knowing all 20 years of tricks. And so it's really hard to change to something else without that. So instrumentation is a facet of analytical chemistry or is it the other way around? Well, okay. analytical chemistry um, is measuring things. And so one aspect of it is one of the classes I teach is on what instruments are used. Another class I teach is called um, quantitative analytical chemistry. In that tech class, we basically talk about um, the various chemistries and very precise chemistries for how things work and how to describe them and how to measure them. And so that's very different. And so there it's mostly color changes to like acid base indicators, like things you use in your pool. Like when you put drops in your pool, that color change, that kind of stuff, and we can gain information and what is specifically going on with that. And so that's analytical chemistry measuring stuff, if you want to get very specific to it. But that's what I, that's my area of expertise. And I measure stuff on surfaces. I look at my, my expertise is in techniques that tell you what's on a surface, how much there is, how thick it is, things of that nature. Like um, one of the techniques I'm just I've used in the past and I've recently acquired for my research group is called a contact angle goniometer. And this basically measures the surface energy of a surface by looking at how a droplet forms on the surface. So you can measure a droplet on a surface, like when you wax your car, like, you know, how water beads up, that's mm -hmm. surface chemistry. And so I'm measuring 
that surface chemistry with this technique. And so that's an example of how I use analytical chemistry for my thing. And so we so measure what, things. What would be the application of that in the real world? Hmm. All right. So like why is surface, that useful? Where is that useful? Um, your iPhone, anti-smudging, um, repellent on glass. Um, they sprayed things on the space shuttle to prevent on the big fuel tank to prevent um, moisture. Um, so any type of coating you can think of when you wax your car, that is surface analytical chemistry because you're waxing the car and putting something down so the water beats up off of it. So anything like that is real world application. My, if we're drilling down a little bit more is I'm interested in how things assemble on surfaces. That's what I study. Um, and so that has application primarily for electronic devices and developing ways to make smaller devices for computer chips, for sensors and things of that nature without having the facilities that Intel has. That's my area of expertise and what I, I find cool. interesting. So that's it. Cause like the Intel, I'll give you an example, like the Intel, the plants cost billions of dollars and they're like the size of the UNF campus. They're huge and they're super labor intensive, super cost intensive, just to get the things they need to make. And so my question is, can we do that cheaper for certain applications? And so can we fundamentally look at it? And so that's what I do That's in cool. a nutshell. I've, we've never gone this deep into it before. So I'm, I'm really fascinated by this. Okay, last question on, on this front. What is a job other than a professor that someone in this area graduates college and goes and does? All right. Um, lots of things. Um, so I have friends. So a lot of my friends who graduated around me from my PhD from Penn State, they ended up at Intel. And so they work on basically looking at defects on computer chips and understanding, measuring them one and two, understanding how to prevent them from happening for future chips. Another one of my friends, he worked at Micron for a while, working on solid state, solid state drives in the late 2000s. And then he moved on to Apple, where he looks at um, memory for the iPhone and things like that. And so he, that's one of the things he can do. Um, I have friends who work at all the big chemical companies like Dow, um, DuPont, they're the same now, um, 3M and places like that, where they're looking at anything on surfaces. because my specific i'm a microscopist by training that's my actual thing so i look at things on surfaces with not my light microscopes but other types of microscopes and so any area that can do that works well ibm actually invented it so ibm's another company where i have friends oh, that work cool. yeah what's what's a average salary for someone that pursues pursues this and doesn't become a teacher <laughs> no offense tj <laughs> it's no, no. Um, they do quite well for themselves. Um, six figures starting plus bonus options, like a one in front of there, maybe a two with bonuses and stock options and things of that nature. Um, and only up from there. Like I have friends who started at Apple late 20, uh, early 2010s and have done very well for themselves at Intel the same way. I mean, they do well, um, support many multiples of what I make currently. So is, would they require a PhD though? Yeah, yeah, it's all PhD chemists, same thing. Um, my skill set really applies well to that. So they get typically get engineering jobs, process engineering jobs at most nanofabrication places. And so that's where they end up working for the most part. 
but then again they're on call they're on call though i mean like they have to be because they're running on um even research fabrication facilities so they have a beeper with them and if their tool goes down they have to go in and things like yeah beeper yeah for such a complex job you think they'd have a more high-tech means of contact you think their robot assistant would come in and be like it's time to go well, they have to, the instrument has to be up. The tool, the instrument has to be up for the fab to work, right? I mean, so anytime the fab goes down, it costs them money, the company money. I mean, this is one of the big problems with COVID, why there's a chip shortage. Because when you shut down these lines, making processes of chips, it takes a significant amount of time for them to start back up. And so anytime they go down, they're losing money. And so my friends are on call. They make good money but they're on call and they can't travel certain weekends and things like that. So there are constraints around there outside of monetary considerations. Wow. I, I hadn't considered that. This is a whole world that I think, unless you choose to be a part of it and you grow with it within a specific industry you're talking about, most of us exist not knowing anything about what you're talking about. That happens a lot. But it's, it, I mean, I like it because I like being around people that are way smarter than me on issues, certain issues like this. So this is cool. I hope we haven't lost our audience by now. And there's other weird ass people that are really interested by what you're saying. So I'm curious, tell us about a major experience in your life that at the time felt like a failure. What, what are you going to talk to us about? Oh, cool. I, so I got a couple different things. I, I, I've been given this a lot of thought and I can give some practical examples and then a few more philosophical examples. Um, one of the most practical examples would be right when I started at UNF. And so there's a lot of pressure on me um, when you start a faculty job, because you have five years and then you go up for what we call five, six years, then you go up for this thing called tenure. Um, basically it means you get a contract in perpetuity. You still have to produce, but you, you get afforded a contract. If you do not get tenure, you get fired. That's, it's either, it's very binary. And, and so it's a very stressful time of your life because you're you're going, I'm gonna do these experiments and I need to produce papers and write grants and things of that nature. And so um, things need to work, let's just say that. And so I proposed some stuff I was fairly confident working with. I had to order a different instrument because I couldn't afford the instrument I had in grad school. My budget is not $2 million a year. So I had to buy the Honda Civic of my instruments versus I worked with Ferraris of my instrument. And so, and so I had this issue and it's gonna sound so stupid. Um, we would basically, we use these little substrates, they're gold, mica on gold. And they would be the size of, if you look at your pinky, they'd be the size of your pinky, a little flat piece of mica and it has a shiny surface on it. And you have to mount it in the instrument. And so we start with stuff we know. I mean, well, it's not that actually they're not. Yeah, they're expensive. They're pretty expensive. How expensive are they? You got to give me a reference. Numbers. So a piece that's probably like, um, I would say, let's go. I would say a piece that's like that big, maybe uh, like, let's say that big. That's probably $2,000. Yeah, I think and so we would cut it up into small pieces about the size of your pinky fingernail because that's all we need for our instrument. And so um, we would mount it. We used typically used press fit in previous places, but I couldn't use press fit for the way that the instrument worked. And so we used glue. Someone said, let's use glue. So we used super glue. I've used it in the past for other substrates. And I mounted it, put, um, put in the instrument, and I saw dots everywhere. And there shouldn't be dots. That's all that needs. It's a very technical term, <laughs> dots. And so I'm like, crap. Okay, well, let's try this. 
And so we try this and then we try something else and we start just working our way back through the processes. Do I have contaminated solvent? Do I have contaminated chemicals? Do I have contaminated tweezers? All this kind of stuff. And so I spent like, I think three, four months on this issue. Cause again, I'm teaching Gosh. a full load service. Like I'm um, serving on committees, I'm mentoring students, like super stressful, like within the first six months of me being at UNF learning everything and having to make lesson plans and do all this kind of stuff. And so three, four months, go by and then all of a sudden we try my friend uh, one of my students goes how about we don't use the glue because we didn't think it was the glue so we didn't use the glue and it wasn't mounted well and it moved around a little bit but the spots weren't there so we and then we did huh. some digging and it turned out that super glue actually cyanoacrylate actually emits a vapor that our surface our specific molecule we were looking on the surface interacts with to make these little dots and so it's I spent four months four of months. my life because to figure that out. And I mean, we're back. And I mean, one of the things with a PhD is I'm going to do stuff wrong, but I'm going to be fair. I'm fairly confident I will be able to back it out and figure out what's going on and why it's going wrong. And so it takes time. And so we backed out. Like, I can tell you it's not the solvent. I can tell you it's not our cleaning. I can tell you it's not the glassware. I can tell you it's not the tweezers. It was the super glue, how we mounted our substrates on there. And so four months of my life was spent with that. And we moved on. It's been fine ever since for that particular example. Were there repercussions of that? I was behind a few months, but it happens. I mean, research, that's research. Most of the time my stuff doesn't work. I mean, that's the other thing is like, it's not like in the movies where I'm gonna study this and two, two weeks later, aha, no. It's <laughs> very slow grinding out of making sure things work. Does the, my, is my glassware cleaned? Is my solvent pure enough? Is there water in my solvent? Things like that. And so it's, it's a grind, but we figured it out and we moved on to the next step. So that's an example of something failing because of something we didn't even think of because I didn't have that experience. But now I know we don't use that. We actually use the glue we ended up using is glue stick glue because it had all these requirements for chemical robustness with how we immerse the substrates and glue stick glue happened to have just the right characteristics where we can melt it, put our substrate down and let it cool and it doesn't have any vapors and it withstand all the other processes we need to use so we bought so, tons of glue stick glue and we use little pieces shavings of it every time we mount a sample and these aren't things you can like just google because i feel like our generation is so used to like going on reddit and finding answers to things these are things you actually have to test oh yeah no it's just me i mean like i have to rely on the fact that i have 20 plus years experience doing experiments and I have to have the confidence to go, okay, it's not this. And that's why it took us four months. Cause I went, okay, first thing I said, okay, our glassware is not clean. So that week we cleaned our glassware using a different process that I, I pulled up the paper went, okay, this is the process we're going to do. Let's clean it. And on top of this, I'm training student undergraduate students through this whole process because it's a learning experience. And so mm -hmm. I'm working with students who aren't the, don't have 20 years experience. And so they're learning along with me. And so you're bringing them along for this cool ride of trying to figure out why we have white dots on our substrates. So when when you found that out, was it, I mean, how big of a fail, I'm trying to measure the level of failure. Was it, did you feel, because you said a student was the one who made the suggestion, did the student also, were they also present when they, when you realized it was in fact the super glue? And did you have, were you embarrassed? Like. No, I wasn't. No, I mean, this happens. I mean, I, t I tell them like- This is just part, part of it. This is part of it. So I think, so let's take a step back. UNF is um, 
we just moved up to R2 status, but in our department, um, we only have undergraduate students. And so I view undergraduate students who do research as awesome, one, but two, they are gaining an experience that is unlike any other experience they're going to have. It's going to be, I want to provide them a snapshot of what it's like to do actual research, what it's like to work in a science lab. And so they get this experience where I don't have the answer. I have an idea of what we're going to do. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, but we're going to go along for the journey and we're going to work through this together and try different things. And so when we were doing it, like I did, I got the white spots because we were checking it. And so then I said, okay, hey, so-and-so, please make the sample, see what you see. And they made the sample and they saw the white spots. I'm like, okay, they're white spots. Okay, let's try. And so we would make a list, a brainstorm, all the things it could be. And then we started to rank them. And then we started just going down and crossing them off. Okay, maybe it's the glassware. So let's clean it this way. Maybe my tweezers aren't clean enough. Okay, we crossed that one off. And so we would go through the list and it took us three, four months of stopped research. We couldn't progress any further until this was solved because we can't use that data because it's not publishable. And we can't talk about it at conferences. We can't put it in grants because it's not useful because we don't understand what's going on. So it was big. I mean, it ground my group to a halt for those three or four months. But I was confident that we were going to figure it out. I wasn't like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my job because of Superglue. No, I knew what I was, I was eventually going to figure it out. So that's a great example just of like what your, jo your job can boil down to seemingly insignificant fuck-ups like Superglue versus the Plenty of those. Um, the latest one is because with COVID, we shut down my group. When we started back up, we saw white spots, but they were not super glue this time because we didn't use glue. Um, <laughs> it ended up being that um, our tweezers weren't clean enough. And so we instituted a cleaning procedure on cleaning our tweezers. Your job would drive me crazy. Oh, no. Oh. It, it, yeah, there's there's all these examples. Um, the other one, current one we're working, that was about three months ago. And that took that took two weeks. That was easy. The one that happened recently was, um, and this is actually really cool. So the one that happened recently is UNF's air circulation system is such that it pulls air in from the outside, gets it to temperature, and pushes it into the building. So if it's if it's really humid outside, the building inside is going to be humid. If it's dry outside it's gonna be dry inside. And so our humidity can fluctuate 50% inside the building. And my experiments wow. actually are very sensitive to humidity changes. And so sometimes we would get certain things at high humidity and other things at low humidity. And so I'm going, okay, what's going on? So we started logging the humidity changes and when we actually made our samples and we started seeing a correlation. And so we're actually working and teasing that out and talking about how humidity affects what the structures and how things assemble on a surface. And that's huh. what we're pursuing now. So it's like we got lemons because our building's ventilation isn't great, but we're able to tease something out that no one and we haven't really thought of, which is kind of cool. That's really cool. And it's I mean, like unexpected. And I have the I understand I'm in confidence to recognize, hey, this is kind of cool and interesting. So let's figure out what's going on here. And so that's what I'm doing right now. That's actually past month of my life. That's also a really great example about how much freedom you have at your job, right? Yes. Because yeah, we were going down path A, we were going down path A for um, like looking at this molecule system. It's really interesting. We had this issue with the dots and that's fine. And then all of a sudden we figured that it out. We started going down week. path A. 
<laughs> and then it rained for a week. The humidity, when it drops temperature, it gets less humid and our substrates go wacky and the sizes are all off. I'm like, what's going on here? And so we started correlating it. And so now we're taking that step back, going to a model system and we're tracking the humidity. And we actually are doing our experiments inside a, a humidity controlled glove bag now to prevent that. Wow. So that was our workaround. So it's like, think of it as like a big Ziploc bag with handholds. So you can do everything inside of the glove bag and the, you can control the humidity by bubbling in air through nitrogen, um, through water. Sounds sweaty. Nah, it's no, we're not that. It's not hot. It's just humid. That's all. So it's very okay. different. So that's, so that's an example. Um, another example of something failing that was kind of cool. Um, so we'll take these dots. So same, same system, but it's what ended dots. up happening was <laughs> they're cool. They're really cool. Cause we can make them all over a surface. And we basically put little tiny spheres across the surface and how they assemble, they assemble into opals, essentially like a structure opal. And they make like this really luminescent kind of structure on surface. And that's the template we use to pattern. Well, working with undergrads is they go to class a lot. And so we're always looking for corners to cut. Hopefully. I mean, <laughs> hopefully they do. My students are awesome. So they, they go to class. They know if they don't go to class, bad stuff happens. Um, so we basically will put in, um, so we cut corners where we can and like we understand the systems. And so one of the corners we cut was, hey, instead of letting this go for an hour, just let it go five minutes, let's see what happens. And so we did that and the holes we got, the resulting holes were four times bigger than they should have been. I went, that's weird. I don't understand that, repeat that. And so they did it again and they got big holes. I'm like, okay, go back to an hour. And we got small holes again. And so by accident, trying to cut a corner, we got this really unexpected result that resulted in a couple of different papers and this whole area that we're currently pursuing down that path where we also had Wait, the Wait, what were the with, holes from? Um, the spheres. So basically we put the spheres down and where the sphere touches the surface, right? Um, the surface, it like is a ring, it's a hole. And so we are using the sphere as a template. And so think of them, a bunch of spheres, like well, take a bunch of ball pit balls that are really small and throw them on a table and they're gonna organize in some sort of pattern. And so then we use the bottom of the sphere to create holes on surfaces. That's what we do. What, okay, wait, I wanna understand this experiment. What is this trying to solve or what is this trying to? Okay, the, so the idea is we wanna be, again, my, my worldview, for my research, like, cause everything is based on this worldview. I'm interested in how things assemble on surfaces. Okay. That's what I'm interested in. Cause if we can control how things assemble on surfaces, we can create sensors, we can create lithography assistance. We can do lithography. We can make metal structures. We can make chemical structures. We can make cool things that have practical applications. And so my questions always revolve around how do we make the structures? And so the technique I'm using is we take these really small spheres that are actually used as microscope um, calibration things. So you put a bunch of them on the surface and they're all the same size. So you can calibrate your microscope. That's what they're used for. What we do instead is we put them on a surface and they form this crystalline opal structure just by drying. Like when you get a coffee ring, right? Mm -hmm. The same principle there. That coffee ring is basically what we're doing on our surfaces. Okay. And so that we get all these sense. little, and so we get all these spheres. And so those spheres, we, they basically are a template. They basically are used to 
create the patterns. Um, best analogy I can give is like screen printing, right? You know, you have the pattern and then you screen print over it and you lift up the, pa the, the pattern and you're left with a, something underneath. Same thing, except think a bunch of spheres as your pattern. And so what okay. we discovered, yes. I have so many questions in my brain right now. I'm trying to organize them. So we're able to control the size of them, which wasn't possible before. And that was by accident because we cut a corner. Is, okay, explain to me the corner that you cut again. So one of the steps required an hour of soaking time for the molecules to assemble oh, on the surface. Okay. We cut the corner because my students had to go to class <laughs> and we did five minutes. I'm like, five minutes, eh, could be good because I we understand how they assemble and the difference between five minutes and an hour and how they assemble, there's not much change. There's not much difference. It turned out there was a huge difference that no one knew about which is kind of cool. So now that you come, now that you come to that conclusion, what's the next step? Do you write a paper on it? We wrote a paper on it. I mean, so we got those results in two weeks. So we pushed really hard because it's like, oh my gosh, this is really cool and really easy. Someone else might do it. So we got the results and then we basically wrote the paper in about a month and then we submitted it into a journal and it got accepted like three, four months later. Oh, wow. Okay. So the, walk me through that process. Cause I, that's, that to me is something that everyone can get behind. Okay. When there's an experiment, you find out something new and exciting that has not been done before. Maybe it's been done before, but I mean, certain issues need multiple papers, right? To confirm them. You write a paper, you submit it to a journal and it gets published. Where my question is, where do people find these types of papers? And how is this beneficial to your career or you, the individual in your career? Uh, okay. So these papers, um, from the general public view, um, you sometimes hear stories on NPR of uh, Dr. So-and-so at such and such place discovered this tidbit or that tidbit. Um, things such as like Science Magazine, Nature are really high-end preeminent papers. Um, I'm, I don't publish there. I publish in lower level journals, but not really lower level journals, more trade journals, things that are more specific to my field. So like the journals I publish to are specifically for people who do assembly stuff, like my research. And so those are available at library. Well, university libraries typically have access to them. You can go on like the, one of the main ones I use is American Chemical Society. And so you can go to their website and you can see them, but they cost, I think, $20, $30 a piece if you're buying them one oh at a time. Yes. I mean, the subscriptions are thousands of dollars to the universe, each university, but it's where that, but, but journals are the currency of my field. Like I get judged for how many papers I publish and where I publish them. I, oh, I wouldn't, okay. I, so if I didn't get, if, if I didn't publish any papers, I would not have gotten tenure. That's what I was about to ask. So one, one thing for, to be clear for me and people watching this is you earlier you said I need to produce or I don't get tenure writing papers them getting accepted to journals specifically journals that are unique to your field that's a form of production yes absolutely it, some people I've heard it referred to as our currency because if you do something cool and don't publish it it never really happened because no one's going to read it or cite it or do anything with it and so journals is how I communicate to the greater world with what my stuff is. So someone might take my cool discovery and do X, Y, Z with it and then cite that paper. And that citation has weight and you get 
quote unquote rated by that, that citation, how many citations you get and things of that. That's called chemist clout. It's well, chemist it's not clout. just chemists. It's all, all academics have that clout. And so it just depends on your field on what type of institution you're at and things like that, different expectations. So for instance, my expectation for tenure was I think two to three papers in six years, but it had to come from my group and work I did at UNF. It couldn't be someone else's work where I contributed like a figure or something like that. It had to be my narrative, my story, my point of view. And so that's what I need to do. But I'm at a lower Ooh. level school too. Like people at UF, they would laugh at me if like I said, yeah, I published two, I, I ended up publishing tenure. I think I published five or six papers as well, which is really good for my type of institution. Yeah. But at UF, that wouldn't be one year's work. But they also have graduate students working 50, 60 hours a week, postdocs working like that. Their teaching wow. load is less. So it has a lot to do with where you're at. Yes, and the expectations. So it's very different. And so I have, I have my niche, the way I like to think about it, I have my niche, it's interesting. I've, it's very satisfying to me. I work with undergrads and my goal is paper is a product, but one of my products is giving my students an experience of what it's like to do research and helping them be successful at whatever they want to do. If they want to go into research, cool. We can, we'll work on that. I'll get them to do internships at other universities or things like that, or work in my lab to get papers to have a better story for when they apply to grad school. Some of them, I've had students who do research with me and they go, yep, not for me. Nope, nope, nope. And, but they wanted to go to pharmacy school. So I would help them get in the pharmacy school and they would still have a really cool story about, I did this research and this is what I did with that research. That's pretty cool. Yes. Yeah, so you're, you're the, you're the, the people's chemist. You want to help, you want to help the, the person, even if they, they have no idea what you're talking about or it's not for them, you're trying to help. So that's why you're a teacher. You've made the comment before that if you wanted to, to make a ton of money, you could have done something else in this field but you chose to be a teacher. And I, that's always stuck with me about you. Um, yes, well, and it's my frame of reference too. You know what I mean? My, well, yeah. I mean, we've always, we've had these conversations before talking about our motivations are a little bit different compared to some other people kind of. In our same fields, 100%. How has your career as a professor and your framework of how you think about your industry and what you, how you want to give back to it, contribute to it, how has your your career thus far, the past 20 plus years, impacted you positively as a person? What have you, how are you a better person because of your career that you did not have before you started down this path? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I would say for me, I am, um, as a professor, I mean, there's the research aspect and that's cool and all that. I would say uh, teaching has really shown me that like, there's a variety of, so again, the problem, if we take a step back, the hardest thing for me when I started out was not superimposing who I was as a student onto other people as a student and recognizing that there are many different paths to being a student. And so I think what's, what was interesting to me, one of the things I learned is that not everyone can I, I, I was fortunate I had scholarships for my futures at um, UF. I didn't really have any student debt or anything like that because I had scholarships and that. But the amount, what surprises me is how much students have to work 
to be able to afford to go to school and all the non-traditional pathways students have in getting to where they're at. I have students who are older than me who are changing careers. I have students who are working 40 hours a week and taking classes. And so just the fact that there's this diverse body of different types of students with different, frankly, motivations, um, I found that very interesting. And that was something that really struck me and that I growth that not everyone's the same and everyone has a different reason and a different motivation level for being in school. That was one thing. Yeah, I, that was that was something that I learned in college. That was because I, I came from a, a very blessed background where my parents saved a lot. for I didn't have to worry about, I didn't have to work. I got an allowance. And I did not appreciate when I'm talking to clients, I'm always like, one of the first conversations we have is how do you how do you view putting your kid through college or, or their education? And I don't want to deter people from saving a ton of money for their kids if that's what they want to do, but I don't think I appreciated it until I saw other people, my peers, struggling to get an education. Like it's a whole different level. So I mean, I feel that, and it's part of what I do today, a big part of what I do, why I wrote that book, Mantis Little Reminder, was to give back to the younger generation that was more likely to have to work really hard to go to school. Yes, and I found that was one of the worldviews that really, it struck me, it took me a little while to figure that out. And so my questions as a professor were always, how can I best accommodate all these diverse things in terms of flexibility and how I do my assignments and how much assignments like not waste their time with busy work or things like that. And so it took me a while to really appreciate the diverse points of view with that. And so that was something that really struck me and and to this day and UNF is going to have a different student body than UF. That's just the way oh, it is. Oh, for sure. And so it just to appreciate that and you have to work with the clay you have and and you have to deal with that and empathy is so important um for these types of things you know i mean just being able to understand not even understand just recognize that their their life situation is very different than my life situation and i have no idea what's going on outside of that classroom and how do i accommodate and be empathetic to their situation I would say empathy and inspire. How do you inspire as many people as you possibly can that are nothing like you? It's hard to, it's easy to inspire people that are similar to you. How do you inspire someone who comes from a totally different background? And you inspire them through doing what you love and setting an example. And uh, clearly you've done that in your career. I, I try to do it in my career and I hope that I impact at least a few people on my way. But I think that's why we've always seen eye to eye even though I have no idea where I would even start or how to describe what you do if you were not in the room to help me. I see when you talk about your job and your career how passionate you are and that translates into how you do your job and how I've watched you do your job. I mean, even how you shoot videos for your for your class during COVID. I mean, this man borrowed like industrial lights. He was like, I have to have the best picture. I want, gotta keep them engaged. And I was like, you're teaching gen pop chemistry. <laughs> 
if I'm going to do something, let's do it right. I, I, I've always right. believed that. And so that's something that I did. Even this, you know, I mean, I grabbed some stuff from work because I got a small grant. I wrote a, I, even before COVID, I actually got a grant right before COVID from UNF on technology in the classroom talking about creating these. I mean, it was small, but it basically let me buy lighting gear and a microphone and camera stuff. And it happened. I think I got the grant. I want to say I got the grant in December of 2019. And so then when pandemic hit, I'm like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> I remember, but I remember calling his wife and she's being like, yeah, TJ's in the studio. Yeah. Well, I had to, cause I had to be somewhere else because I couldn't do this in the living room. Cause my son was in one room, my, Michelle was in the other room and I was in the other room and we were all working from home. And the Peloton was in her room. Yes. Yes, I remember that. Um, but going back to your other question, I think the other um, big thing I learned was that my life is not my job. I mean, that's something that took me the longest time. And I feel academia is notoriously bad for this. Like I was, it's one of the reasons why I took the job at UNF versus going to a, a larger school is when I was a grad student, that was something on my mind. I'm like, I, every faculty there was divorced, practically divorced and married one of their postdocs or married someone else in academia. Oh man. They worked a lot and that's all they did. They lived to work and they loved it and more power to them. But I don't see myself that way. I've never seen myself that way. I love my job. I love what I do and I'm going to do my best, but I want to have time for myself and I want to enjoy my time with my family. And that's something that in grad school, I worked 60, 70 hours a week, six days a week. You know, I was working quite a bit. My treat was going out on Saturdays an hour later and grabbing a breakfast sandwich on my way. And that was my treat. That's and it depressing. just was, I was living very un, an unbalanced life. Mm -hmm. And so it took me a very long time. Even when I got here at UNF, I had to work hard. You know, I mean, I would go in, be at work at six. I'm a morning person. So I'd be in at six and I would leave at five every day. And then go on the weekends about two or three times a month. And then when my son was born, it was one of those things I actually had to take that step back and go, look, I need to be with my family. And yes. so that was something that and live and do things outside of work and become a more balanced individual. And that was something I learned that took a very long time to do and get comfortable with that. Like, I don't need to be at work all the time. So I don't check emails after 4.30 p.m. until the next morning. I think that it takes a long time to not feel guilty about that too. Oh, I'm I in feel the guilty about that. it sometimes. Oh God, it takes you, you're, that's, that's no hope for me then. I'm in the throes of that where I'm like, I just feel so guilty if I don't answer an email at 7 p.m. or a text it. And I'm like, I have, there's like two parts of me that are arguing with themselves. Like, Kendall, this can, you can't, the market's closed. You can't do anything about this until tomorrow. Put your phone down. So I struggle with that too. I'm hoping it goes away someday. But so. I find so what I found is in my classes from a teaching perspective is I actually in my syllabus and the first day of class I go I look I love y'all if I'm if it's a business hours you can well I even say two business days is reasonable time but understand that business days means not the weekends and I stop mm -hmm. checking email at 4 30 so if you email me on Friday at 4 30 you're not going to get a response the next week that's just the way it's going to be and so I emphasize that quite a bit but I go so far as I don't have my work email on my phone anymore oh and if i oh my god and if i do could... get an email happen to be checking on my computer and i do get an email i and i want to write a response i write a response but i'll delay sending it until business hours 
this is how bad I am. I have my work email and all of my personal emails and all my business emails all in one inbox. So I don't even know who I'm answering. I'm just answering everyone as if it's, as if it's one big email. So UNF made us go away from that about four or five years ago. So UNF went, nope, you have to use this email. You cannot use your personal. I'm like, cool. Yeah, and so that like, was really, I'm on I it. used that as an opportunity. Yep, I used that as an opportunity to actually prevent that. But that was something that I found I grew quite a bit in setting boundaries about, okay, I'm not going in to work on weekends anymore, unless it's an emergency. I mean, there's always emergencies, but weekends are family time. And I'm going to yeah. spend it with my family. That's the one thing I've gotten good on. Every now and then I'll have a client be like, well, you know, you only work during regular business hours. Can you do a weekend appointment? And I'm like, do you go to your doctor on the weekend? No, it's, you know, you take an hour off, you take it, you come during your lunchtime, we do a meeting. I, but it took me having kids to set that boundary. Like, no, I'm, that's my only time with my kids. Um, I think it's funny how kids, kids really have a way, and I never wanted kids, but I'm so happy I did it because they have a way of putting you in your place and prioritizing your life, even if you did, didn't want to. Yes, but it, it's still a struggle, though, even with kids. I find that some um, my wife was in a, a car accident uh, fall 2020, and I should have taken leave from work. And mm -hmm. reflecting back on it and something that I learned from that was I didn't take leave because it was in the middle of the pandemic and I didn't want to burden any of my colleagues with teaching my three classes remotely for a couple of weeks. I mean, my wife is completely fine and she's fine and we managed and I was teaching remotely anyway. So I was able to actually manage it by working at night on my classes and helping Michelle during the day, but I, I should have taken leave. And there are areas where work still creeps in that it shouldn't and recognizing that and ensuring that in the future I try not to let that happen but the fact that you know that and you can acknowledge it shows that you've evolved right there's like and you're saying it here so I mean that you're already light years ahead of, of most husbands by even being able to be like I did this but I should have done that on some because that was really hard for Michelle and you I, I remember that and um I'm that's awesome that you can sit here and say that reflecting back. And I'm sure Michelle will appreciate that if she ever sees that. No, I mean, I've told her that I, it's one of those things that, I mean, but, it's, but that's just an example. I think it goes back to this idea that work is not your life. Work is something you should enjoy and it helps you live, but at the same time, it's not your life and priorities are important and they should be prioritized in situations and being a little selfish in that respect is important. And, that's something still I need to work on. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's something we'll all, I mean, that's a life, that's a life journey, TJ. Life journey. But um, before my computer dies, I do want to conclude and say, I appreciate you so much for coming on here and speaking. This, I mean, it was last minute. I think I asked you like a few weeks ago and you just like scooted right on in. And I'm so happy. Someday I'll get Michelle to come on. And she's probably going to cry and I can't wait someday. Um, I'm just proud of you and I'm so happy that you're in my life and I'm thankful for you and you're going to keep killing it. Yes. Thank you. No, we, we love you. You're awesome. As I tell you every time, just keep being who you are and be awesome. I'm trying TJ. I'm trying. 
Everyone, that is another episode of Failure Friday. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you have any questions on this field, uh, this industry, TJ's job, which I'm sh- I haven't ever had anyone this technical or chemist on. So there's probably going to be a few of you that are like, what the hell does he do? I'm interested. Or maybe some of you knew exactly what he was talking about the entire time. TJ, how can they reach you? Um, probably the best is going to be my work email. Um, TJ Mullen at unf.edu. That's probably going to be the best way to get a hold of me. And again, nights and weekends. Two business days, not after 4.30. After 4.30, he's neck deep in his Legos. <laughs> Lego. <laughs> Lego. <laughs> Thank you so much. I will talk to you later. Thank you.